0: Tonight I want to talk about the subject of wise attention, um, sometimes also translated appropriate attention. It's the translation of the phrase in the Pali, Yoniso Manasikara. And I have a lot to say about this, and I'm going to indulge myself in that. It's going to be at least two talks, not in once, (laughs) part tonight and part next week. Uh, I indulge myself because I'm always cutting things out when I talk about this. So you guys are, well, whatever it is, it'll be. But um, in my opinion, this wise attention, Yoniso Manasikara, which I'll explain, of course, is a key, really a key concept, a key tool in our, both in our bhavana practice, our meditation practice, but also throughout our whole life. It's a key tool for how we can relate to our moment-to-moment experience in a way that's liberating. So how we can basically be in the same situation with wise attention, that situation can bring us to awake wakefulness, to waking up, or the same situation can lead us into continuing the rounds of confusion. And the key difference is the understanding, the actualizing in our own experience of what wise attention, appropriate attention really is. And mostly uh, I want to be referring at various points uh, to one of the suttas of the Buddha, which is really sort of the one where he talks the most about wise attention, although he mentions it in quite some other places. This sutta is the second one in the um, middle-length sayings, the majina, nikaya. And it's called the the sutta on all the taints, or all the asavas. There's no good translation in English. Taints is kind of old-fashioned. Stains, cankers, defilements, we already get negative. But the sutta is talking about how to basically uproot all our tendencies of mind towards suffering. And the key that the Buddha talks about in the sutta is this wise attention, yoni samana sikara. So what is it? Basically wise attention. Appropriate attention is probably better, but I'm so used to saying wise attention that I'm going to probably just keep slipping into saying that. and also not to constantly inflict the Pali on you. Um, The basic definition the Buddha gives is extremely pragmatic, as pretty much everything he seemed to have said was, is he's talking about these asavas, these kind of subtle roots of suffering, which I'll explain more in a moment. But he says bhikkhus means monks, I say to you that there is an exhaustion of these taints, these asavas, an ending of these asavas in one who knows and sees, not in one who does not know and see, who knows and sees what? Wise attention and unwise attention. Now that's a very bold statement, as he was wont to make. But he's basically saying one who knows and understands wise attention and unwise attention comes to the end of defilements, of asava. And he defines it, of course, experientially. When a person attends unwisely, both unarisen asavas arise, unarisen suffering states arise, and arisen suffering states increase so it's a very practical definition when one attends wisely both unarisen suffering states do not arise and arisen ones are abandoned and then one other line i just want to begin with it he says is that one who knows is you know what is fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention, right? Now to us, this fit for attention and unfit for attention can come through our minds in a very judgmental way, right? You turn it into your practice. This anger is unfit for attention, right? This pain in my knee is unfit for attention, you know? This personality pattern of, you know, pride and blame, is unfit for attention, something else should be happening. That is not what we're talking about. That is not wise attention, as I will hopefully make abundantly clear. So what, just to define this word asava, taint, to describe what the Buddha is talking about. Asavas is a word that kind of means an influx or an outflux. It's like a pouring in to our mental experience of the um, defilements or habits, the, uh, the suffering habits of mind from the very deepest or most subtle level, right? So it's the, the deepest habits of mind, the tendency for these deep habits to arise given the supportive conditions. And these asavas are what the, the habit of mind is what keeps us spinning in the rounds of samsara, as I described how pleasant that is last week. So when the Buddha in the sutta speaks about the asavas, he's actually fairly specific. And usually there are three, and in this sutta three, specific, very subtle, pervasive, underlying habits that he's referring to that keep us spinning. One is the craving for sense pleasure. The second is the craving for being, the craving for becoming. And the third asava is ignorance, which basically covers everything else. Ignorance and sometimes wrong view is also spoken about in there. So, wise attention, how we pay attention, and what we pay attention to, is that we learn to pay attention In such a way that when we're present paying attention, these tendencies for craving, for wanting to become something, for just ignorance, not knowing what's going on, these decrease with wise attention. When our attention's unwise, we're paying attention to the wrong thing in the wrong way, in the inappropriate, better than wrong, in the inappropriate way, then actually the feedback is pretty clear because these Asavas, these habits get stronger and we can experience this, we do experience this, moment to moment. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be deep, deep, deep in meditation for four months to pick up on this, you know. It does occur from time to time in all of our experience, no matter what we're doing. But the quiet and the subtleness of meditation, and for some of you who've been here Quite some time, your minds are definitely noticing on this subtle level. But, so the Buddha says, what's fit and unfit. But it's not that what is fit or unfit, it's not that a particular object or subject or sense experience or mind experience is in itself has a fixed determination. As, for example, anger. It's not that anger. Is always unfit, and that paying attention to anger is going to lead to an increase in the asavas, that it's unwise attention. No, it's indeterminate because it's not so much what we pay attention to, but how we pay attention. And these two are, I think, the seeds of all of our mindfulness and concentration practice, the seeds of all the skillful means that we employ. To help us keep aware. So, how we pay attention, I want to now refer to, in terms of, to give a feeling of this how, the, the word that we're translating as appropriate or wise attention is self, yoni so manasikara. And this is the way Andy Olensky, you know, the director of the study center, this is the way he glosses this word, how he breaks down its different meanings. And while it's not exact as to what appropriate attention really is in our experience, I love this because it gives to me the felt sense of the quality of appropriate attention, of mindfulness, basically. I mean, what else are we ever talking about? What do you think appropriate attention is going to come down to be? Mindfulness, you know? But the quality of it. So, yoni so, he says, is from the word yoni, right, which is womb. And if you think of womb, womb like, he says, yoni so, nurturing, held in protection, you know, you can think of sati, the word for mind, mindfulness being our protection from the arising and getting lost in these suffering, unwholesome tendencies. So, womb like, yoni so, held in protection. Manasikara is usually translated as attention. Mana means mind. Kara is from the verb meaning action. Kama, or karma in the Sanskrit, comes from the same word, doing. So kara means doing or making, and so he puts that together as an active quality of mind, mind that's doing something, that's action, that is present and nurturing. Actively present and nurturing. So, you know, I just get a sense from that, not like, you know, this driving force of mind. Yes, it will be what I want it to be. Yes, this unpleasant thing should go away but womb-like. And maybe it's because I'm a woman, you know, that maybe to, to guys this actually, oh, Andy did tell me, I have to acknowledge. But it's a sense of holding it with that accepting quality of attention, but absolutely, totally present with the experience just as it is. Mindfulness, right? So that's the quality of appropriate attention And this, this is what we bring into our practice with that understanding, really looking in our experience, and it's what we're always encouraging you to do about around skillful means, so that it's not only what we pay attention to, but how. And simple, obvious examples, the four foundations of mindfulness that Myoshin talked about last week. Bear attention to any arising experience, right? So take anger, since I've been using that. That's the quality of mind, the third foundation of mindfulness. In itself, it's indeterminate whether it's wise or unwise attention, appropriate or not, to really be present with mind, with with the anger, with the ill will. If the attention has this quality, you know, this Yoniso Manasikara of sort of surrounding, seeing clearly, not feeding any other reaction state of mind to it. Just meet that ill will with mindfulness. You can see in that moment it is wise attention. The ill will does not increase. It doesn't mean that it magically goes away either, which is what some people are looking for. used that, went away, so I did it right. (laughs) It's not that. But that sometimes the ill will or the pain in the knee can last a long time. But you can tell, it might, you know, rise and fall within some moments, but overall the sense of, you know, ill will or grasping or craving, the sense of being, I am such a horrible, angry person, or the total ignorance of getting really lost in the whole story, those do not increase, right? You can just be with ill will, rising and falling, a little bit caught, it lets go, and then when it ends you really have that sense of being awake, being present. That was wise attention. And of course, as we all know, unwise is either somehow meeting that ill will, but there's already in the mind not that clear meeting. There's some other ill will, or there's some sense of identification, or there's some wanting, or there's just the ignorance of getting completely lost in the story about, yeah, well, that person is a jerk, and I should be angry, and no, no, no. What's going to happen, right? And what's the result of that? What's the effect? When we wake up from that, are we feeling really balanced, and present, and mindful? Probably not probably the tendency is the next unpleasant thing that arises, the mind is just more ready to grab at it. Similarly, take something like uh, just you're just doing simple shamatha, just being with the sensations of breath. And rarely would we say, well, sensations of breath, that's got to be wise attention. Can be or not. Even that, it's indeterminate. So when there's this simple full attention of mindfulness with the sensation of breath, and you see what's strengthening, what's being cultivated is non-clinging, non-hatred, non-delusion. Any moment of mindfulness, those three are present. Non-clinging, non-hatred, non-delusion. Just one moment. That's why it's so powerful. Also, you'll notice that over time of simple attention to one breath at a time, Qualities of mindfulness, of samadhi, of tranquility, of equanimity are all being cultivated. And I would venture that most, if not all of you, have had the alternate experience of being really quite closely paying attention to the breath, but with what attitude? yoni so and not so much. There can be huge clinging in the way the attention is connecting with the breath. Huge clinging, wanting to stay there, wanting to get more concentrated, or aversion, let me feel this breath, please God, so I don't have to get caught in that obsessive thought again, you know, or trying to make it meet some idea, whatever. But again, the feedback loop, whether it's immediately or five or ten minutes or half an hour or a day down the road, is that what begins to manifest? Frustration? Craving? Craving for sense pleasures? Craving for becoming? I want to become a more concentrated person. That's craving for becoming, you know? Or just ignorance. I'm trying as hard as I can and it just keeps getting worse, so I've got to try harder, you know? So you get a sense, right? And where we're working here this Yoni Manasikara, appropriate attention, is really the key, the tool under all of our skillful means. That's why, uh, it, like in a retreat where we're giving instructions up here and, or answering questions, and we give an instruction, and then someone asks a question, and we give them a totally opposite instruction from what we just said in, in, in the instructions in the morning. And then someone else comes into an interview and they're like breaking themselves trying to, to meet that instruction, we say, oh, no, no, you shouldn't do that. You should do exactly the opposite. And then three days later when they come in and they're saying, well, I'm doing what you said. No, 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 now you shouldn't do that anymore. Now you should do this. Because the conditions are always changing. Nothing steady state. And so remembering that our guideline isn't, does it feel good? Does it, you know, oh, this just feels so right. This just feels like what I need to be doing now, you know, staying with the breath or noticing emotions or whatever, because it's the path of least resistance sometimes. It's not about it's pleasant or feeling good right now, but it's really about keeping your uh, kind of background attention, your sense of cause and effect attuned to the subtle habits and inclinations of our mind that's the level we're working on with wise attention. So that if, you know, you're, you, you think you're practicing really clearly and over days you're just getting more and more and more lost in craving. I mean, we all have periods where craving comes up. That's part of practice, you know. But I mean, over time you see something, <laughs> something seems to be going in the wrong direction, you know. That's the time to look and see Is there something I'm doing that's feeding. This. That's not wise attention, inclining the mind. Let me give a grosser example of the habits. I mean, this isn't so, it's gross, but it's not. But sometimes when we talk about the asavas on the level I'm talking about, the habit of clinging, the habit of wanting to become, of being, the habit of ignorance, and it's a habit, you know. Sometimes that feels so subtle we don't quite get what I mean. But mm, let me give you a, one way the, that it's talked about to get the different levels. Uh, they talk about uh, I don't know if this the Buddha or in the in the um, commentaries anyway. I got this from the Burmese Sayadaw, where they talk about the three vatas or the three rounds of samsara. It's really the three different levels. At which these deep habits of our minds manifest in our life, and what protects us on each level. So, the first level is called these are the English translation of these words, but they call the level of transgression. And it means basically where these deep habits of mind manifest in speech and action, right? <laughs> Out of control, basically. And what protects us on this level of transgression is sila, is our commitment to even just the five precepts, really protects us from speaking and acting out of these uh, basically suffering states. The second vata, the second level, is called the level of the obsessive defilements, or the obsessive kalesa which speaks for itself. You know, your mind gets really caught in obsessive thought, emotion, over and over and over, right? And you're really caught. And what protects us there is samadhi. That's really why samadhi, when we first begin to hit into it, why is it so nice? All that stuff is at a distance, you know? It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. It's like just having such a nice of peace. The mind is just shutting up, even for five minutes. And you see how totally exhausting this obsessive level is. And the third, and this is the Asava level, is called the latent, the latent level. Latent means underlying. It's not yet come to flower, but the potential is there. So that it means um, if appropriate conditions come together, then on the latent, the underlying level, that kalesa will spring up. And what protects us there is panya, is wisdom. They say greed, hatred, and delusion are not fully abandoned by acts, but by wise seeing. So I'll just give you a simple example, just to hammer it in. Very simple, these three levels. Say you're doing your walking meditation. And very quietly, and you're there, and someone just comes along, comes in front of you and, and, you know, bumps into you, bangs you into the wall, which of course would never happen here because everyone is so sublimely aware. But, you know, in crowded retreats, it can happen. Deeds or speech transgression, well, that's obvious. You stupid jerk, you know. Or even if you just said, excuse me, you know, with all the venom that you could summon up. That would be Acting. On the level of transgression. And our sila protects us, right? Never mind moving to acts more than speech that's even stronger. The obsessive level, we don't say anything. You look like the perfect yogi. You didn't even notice them. But for the rest of the walking, I can't believe I cannot believe that that person just walked in front of me. They don't respect me at all. And nobody respects me. And that really shows how nobody respects me. I'm not standing for it. I tell you, I'm not standing for it. You can take it from there. So Eve either go out in a long story or even more suffering. You repeat the same three thoughts over and over and over, you know, because that's not nearly as interesting and you can't kid yourself that it's going somewhere, but it has the same depth of suffering. Now in both of these, if you have any awareness at all, you know you're suffering, (laughs) It's scary because sometimes you don't. You think, yes, it's really right that I tell off this person. That's appropriate. (laughs) But anyway, the latent level is how really much more refined. You're walking and you're not spaced out at all. You're very present. And there could just be a moment of not quite mindful, not gross, But the person walks in front of you and the mindfulness just was away at that moment. And that latent, that even though you haven't had any aversion or desire going on for quite some time, you've been really mindful, all of a sudden it comes rushing up. And have you had that experience where you go, wow, you know, where did that come from? I really, you know, I've really been very present. Where did that come from, you know? That's the give me a break level but where that's the level of asava that we're talking about here, where just the seed, the potential is there, the habit of mind, given the right conditions, it's like a seed that's just been under the earth forever, and when it's watered and has the right sun, it can sprout. That's the asavas that the Buddha's talking about, just that subtle tendency. Not the state itself but the potential for it to arise, right? So you see we're talking on a subtle level here. And I personally think it's the genius of the Buddha that he could really now of course, experience this level, but make it so clear, talk about it. You know, you know how when um, you've been going in life and You've seen so clearly in practice, in your daily life, you've seen so clearly the suffering of clinging, you know, or the impermanence, or a particular personality pattern. It's really clear how empty that is. think, I don't need that anymore. I'm done with that, right? Famous last words. But you really have seen through it. It's not an illusion. And then we turn around in a retreat or in life, five minutes later or five months later, And there it is, pops up in all its strong glory, and you think, how? You know, that question, how can this keep happening? And I would be surprised if there's someone here who hasn't had that experience. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one. But, or when you think, you know, I've been practicing, I've been understanding a lot in practice, but in my life I seem to be getting worse. It seems like these patterns are coming up more and more. So, on a little less subtle level, because most of us don't go through, oh, I see the potential for the habit of becoming arising now, right? That's really not so much the way you're going to think about it. Clinging to sense pleasure is okay, but the habit of becoming, putting it that way, maybe we don't notice it. Let me put it in a grosser way, if you want to call it Sankhaya Ditti, right? Personality view. What is our personality view, but simply our clinging to or aversion towards any or all of the particular habits of our thoughts about ourselves, of our memory, the habits of our emotions? the particular personality traits or habits of response, reaction, in particular situations. What is the kaya ditti but a kind of a solidifying, a clinging to, a making permanent in our mind, any sum of these patterns, and suffering from that. Suffering not from the patterns, but from unwise attention. So whether, you know, whether your pattern is... Um, In times of difficulty, strong self-pity. Or feelings of worthlessness. Or feelings when things aren't going your way of blame throwing out on other people. Or just being really cranky and aversive when you're tired. And you know you get tired and up comes aversion when you've been so present and kind all day. Or just really getting so high when there's a lot of sense pleasure. You know, just loving the sense pleasures, and just at some point getting really lost in that, till you see how you're putting your whole life around having more and more. Or I'm an athlete, or I'm an introvert, or this is what happens to me in this situation. Whatever. We all have our own. We all have many, 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 many particular habits of emotion, of the descriptions of thought that we buy into and have repetitively about ourselves, particular responses, The thing is none of them are steady state. They're all different habits and patterns coming and going, coming and going, right? Have you had anyone that stayed steady all day? I mean really, don't just say, oh yeah, right, it did. I mean really stayed steady all day. No breaks, no gaps, no fluctuation. I doubt it. I doubt it. But we actually compound our suffering by um, the flight of the Garuda, which is a Tibetan text, says, due to our pernicious habitual pattern of solidifying reality. So we take thoughts about ourselves, we take patterns of emotion, habits of reaction, and completely solidify. Yes, this is me. This is who I am. This is what always happens in this situation. Well, it does happen often. That's really a manifestation. Of this level of asava, a very, very deep and subtle inclination or habit of mind. Give me a particular circumstance where I'm not very aware, and I'm I'm a cranky at night person and when I'm tired. Give me a particular evening when I'm tired and I'm not aware at all, and anything just mildly approaching unpleasant and crankiness will arise. Now for years I didn't really understand that. And so the crankiness would arise and I'd, get, I'd act on it. I'd say something unpleasant, or just feel really unpleasant and get restless and, you know, do more things, but pancha of action to get away from it, which when you're cranky everything just gets worse. Now that I know it much more clearly, if that situation's there, because that inclination in the right situation of no mindfulness is still there, it still can arise. But as soon as the crankiness arises, I meet it with wise attention. Oh, crankiness feels like this. And so at that point, it's not sakya Ditti anymore. There's not a sense of grasping, of making it me, of identifying with it, of turning it into becoming. I'm becoming a cranky person. I am becoming, you know, a worthless person, an athlete, an introvert or whatever, a good meditator, a concentrated person, whatever. Your Sakaya Ditti's been in the last half hour. It can come and go just like anything else. We don't have to stop those thoughts, those emotions, those patterns. Simply the solidifying, the grasping around them, that's unwise attention. We notice it, but like that. Or, oh, crankiness feels like that. And that's wise attention. That seed doesn't go any farther. So this makes sense so far, huh? Yeah. So what's really, to me, very inspiring, and I know people use this quotation from the Buddha a lot. The quotation I'll say in a minute, but he often describes or defines a full awakening or an arhat in the Theravada model as someone who is free from all the asavas. Meaning that in that person, even in a particular, in any condition, those tendencies have been erased basically. They've been exhausted, I think is the better, just worn out. So that even if I was incredibly tired and incredibly busy and something really unpleasant happened, crankiness just wouldn't arise. It Just wouldn't arise. It couldn't arise. You see why that's the definition of an arha. But um, the inspiring thing is how often the Buddha says, and he says in terms of this, if it were not possible, I would not tell you to do so, to apply wise attention. So I say that first because then I want to go back now to the subtle level of asava, where we can really begin to play with not getting down on ourselves or discouraged, but just play with how it works and how strong and sudden this uprushing is. That's the asava really means like the influx, and sometimes it really feels like this, so just like this uprushing of kalesa out of nowhere. But also how in a moment of mindfulness it can be gone. So an example, in one, one retreat I was sitting, i had been, I don't know, a couple of months was very deep in. Mindfulness was really pretty steady and strong. And it was in between sittings and I remember I was in my room and I was looking outside at a tree leaf and I was just right there noticing it, seeing, seeing a leaf. It was vibrant color, seeing pleasant, seeing pleasant because by that time the mind was just noting every moment, I mean, it was just what it was doing. And It was so alive, you know, very connected. And in just a moment, there was just a slight, and this was so slight, backing off of connected attention. You know, where you're going, seeing, seeing, pleasant, vibrant, seeing, ah. You know, it's just like you kind of go, ah, delusion for a moment. You don't even look around, but you just kind of, you don't even have time to space out, but you disconnect. And it was as if, I don't want to be discouraging, it's just how I saw it happen, in this moment, it really was like this huge influx of craving. Just wanting, and oh, it's so beautiful, and how can I have more? And it just started going, you know, down the road of papancha, proliferation, in that amount of time. It was really amazing. Memories, pleasant memories, desire, my whole life, in about a tenth of a second. At which point I was just like, oh my god, you know. Pleasant memory, seeing. And then it was gone. But that, I remember it so vividly because it was a visceral, a feeling sense of really how the power of the underlying tendency can be at certain times. Not always. At certain times. Yeah. It's also a good example of how Yoni manasikara, appropriate attention, totally connected and non-judging and not adding anything extra. In that moment of sati, mindfulness, non-greed, non hatred non-delusion, the whole kalesa, the whole asava of sense desire just stopped. And in that moment it's gone, right? We're not talking... we're talking about a habit of mind, an underlying tendency, but it's not like it's sitting there, you know, this big glob of asava of sense desire that you have to chip away at until suddenly it's all gone, you know? We tend to think I'm working on my conditioning, you know, I have this much left to go. You know, it's like if you have the habit of smoking. When you're not smoking, you're really not smoking, right? There's not like some little smoker in there puffing away and it's just going to suddenly come out and you notice it. You're either smoking or you're not. So it's the same. You're craving or you're not. So working on the two levels are practice really obviously in daily life and retreat is working a lot on the level of acting and speaking and obsessive. It's also working very much on the latent level it's just something we don't notice or think about or pay attention to as much. But every moment of mindfulness is not only not watering a <laughs> double negative. You know what I mean? When in a moment of mindfulness, we're not watering the seed of the latent tendency. It doesn't have a chance to sprout. And also, what we are doing is planting the other seeds of the habit of non-greed non-hatred, full attention, non-delusion. And that then becomes the stronger tendency. Until finally the other asava tendency, those little seeds, wither away from lack of being fed, from deep seeing, understanding, insight, they stop being fed and finally wither away altogether. And it's important, I think, to really Understand and trust this because as your practice, not only here but in life, is your dedication to paying attention to what you're doing here and off the cushion gets stronger, you're going to start to notice you already are the subtle levels where these asavas are manifesting in a much more subtle way than we would normally have noticed, you know. And so it seems like. We're not getting any better and maybe even getting worse. And we we fail sometimes to notice that we're not screaming and yelling and hitting and blaming. We're just walking very peacefully and having the spurt of, Oh my God, I can't believe... Oh yeah, you know, and it goes away and you're back to being mindful. It feels just as jarring. You know, we don't really realize, because we're so in it, how much more subtle a level we're working on and how the noticing of it and the immediate bringing in Yoni Manasikarup eradicates it in that moment, how really powerful that is. It's important to really give that credit. Here, one way you just might notice from time to time, because this does also happen, that when you walk into or a condition arises that is absolutely ripe, all the conditions for your prime tendencies to emerge. You know, blame, self-judgment, comparing, worthlessness, desire, whatever it is. And you walk in and you're not trying not to have it happen. You just walk in and the person who so far has never been able to walk across your field of vision without some nasty judging thought arising in your mind, Suddenly they walk across and without any premeditation, metta arises. They walk across and you think, oh, they must be really suffering. May they be happy. Where did that come from? It must be that deva behind me saying it, because it sure didn't come from this mind and body. Or you walk in and somebody does something that would normally get a version flying in just space. Nothing happens. You know, I... I I don't know, this. years ago, I think it was the first three-month retreat I ever sat. And the whole, I'd sat a lot before, but not in that form with these people. I didn't know who anybody was. And there was, so I was kind of, you know, just checking it out and making up my stories about people. And there was one guy who I somehow made up. He was some really, you know, enlightened guy. I didn't even know who he was. And this reason I had this story is because he would always come to lunch really late, like 20 minutes late, you know, and just come in late and take whatever and sit down and eat. And I think, wow, he must be so free, you know, he must be this amazing guy. How can you come to lunch late when it's the only thing going on in the day and the food might run out, you know, you know all the riffs. And uh, and I remember one retreat, I don't know when, sometime later, I didn't even notice it halfway through the retreat, I suddenly became aware that I wasn't even thinking about the food. And I myself was coming 20 minutes, 30 minutes late, something would be run out. I didn't care. It wasn't any big renunciation. I really didn't care. And that was the sense of just in that particular moment, the particular asava not arising, not being there in that moment. I'm not saying it doesn't come up other times. We can see those conditions that just couldn't bring it up anymore. And that for the most part has stayed steady around that on retreats unless I'm having a really bad day. But um, just to see how y- it's nothing to take credit for because it's so clearly not you. But you can feel how that particular tendency just gets exhausted from not being fed and from insight, from understanding. So it's important to notice that in yourselves as well. (laughs) This might be three talks. So, the Buddha talked about in this particular sutta, that's why I said it might be three talks, I didn't even get to the sutta yet. He talks about seven different ways to cultivate wise attention, samani Sikara, and to extinguish, to uproot the asavas in our life. And what I love about this sutta is the seven are, some of them are really fairly specific to bhavana, to meditation on the cushion like we're doing, but not all of them. Some of them are quite applicable to how we relate to situations in our life. So it's both a very precise view, but also stepping back and looking at our relationship to experience in our life, our relationship to food, our relationship to environment, our relationship to mental states, and such such as that, as well as in the meditation. So that's the next thing I want to talk about, obviously. I'm only going to talk about the first one. I might not even finish the first one tonight. Um, So, the, but just to, again, to lead into that, to emphasize again that unwise attention is at the root of our spinning in the rounds of samsara. That, you could say, is the proximate cause, the reason that we keep getting catapulted into the rounds of samsara. It causes craving and ignorance and becoming to increase. Wise, appropriate attention is at the root of liberation. Unarisen asavas do not arise, and arisen ones are abandoned. That's very interesting. Unarisen ones don't arise, and arisen ones are abandoned. So that's what the Buddha talks about in this sutta. I'll just read you the seven ways, and then say a little bit about the first one for tonight. These ways that, he says, when a person attends unwisely, well just as I said, these are the seven ways. Asavas can be abandoned by seeing, by insight. The second one is, asavas are abandoned by restraining, restraint at the sense doors. They are abandoned by using, by attention to how we use things, use our requisites. They're abandoned by patience or enduring in this translation. They're abandoned by avoiding things that are harmful. They're abandoned by removing, in other words, um, not allowing unskillful harmful states to continue removing. And they're abandoned by developing and specifically developing the seven factors of enlightenment, the seven Bojangas. So those are these seven areas that he talks about, that I'll go into a little tonight and the rest next week. Abandoned by seeing, I want to read you some of what he says. This is what he goes into in quite some depth in this sutta. Okay, he starts by saying that an untaught, ordinary person, and I, is that Patujana? Is that Patujana? Yeah, Patujana, who has no regard for noble ones and doesn't understand the Dharma and is undisciplined in it. I won't, you know, point any fingers, but untaught ordinary folk. uh, This person does not understand what dhammas or things are fit for attention and what are unfit for attention. Since that is so, he does not attend to the things that are fit for attention and he attends to dhammas that are unfit for attention and just what I said. Now let me give you an example how he talks in the sutta. This is how one attends unwisely. I like this because it cracks me up. This is in quotations. Was I in past time or was I not in past time? What was I before? Or how was I before? Past time could be another life or it could be the last sitting, right? Shall I be in the future or not? How shall I be in the future? What shall I be, having been what in the past? What shall I be in the future? Or else, <laughs> he—what's uh, this word I've written all over it? Or else he is perplexed in himself about the presently existing time, such as: Am I? Or am I not? How am I? How did I come to be here? Where will I be going? Can you relate? When he attends unwisely in this way, and this is quite bare, but it can be anything, you know, how was I so angry before? Am I going to be angry like this in the future? How could I have done that in the past? I can't believe I acted like that. I wonder if I'll do that again, but now that I've practiced so much, I'll probably be in the situation very differently. We make the whole thing up. This is what he's talking about right here. When he attempts it in this way, one of six kinds of view arises in him, and it's all these different views of self. The view that self exists in me, for me, arises as true. Or the view no self exists for me arises as true. Or the view I perceive self with self arises as true and established. Or the view I perceive not self with self arises as true and established, or <laughs> the view I perceive self with not-self arises as true and established, or he has some such view as this is myself that speaks and feels and that experiences now here and now there, <laughs> good and bad, ripening of karma, and goes on and on. Now this view is called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views the contortion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. No untaught ordinary person bound by this fetter of views is freed by aging and death, by sorrows and lamentation. He is not freed from suffering, I say." You get a sense? (laughs) Unwise attention leads us into the thicket of views. The thicket of views is not always quite so baldly stated as that in our minds. But just that, even it's not put into discursive thought, but the sense, I am like this. Oh, now I'm really having a good and not to hit. This is how I've always been and this is how I always will be. You know? or. Oh, it's like that, but now I'm going to be like this. When I leave retreat and I'm just a walking bodhisattva, it's going to feel like this. Any of this stuff, the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, unwise attention, it doesn't mean we're bad, it just means we suffer. And the more we pay attention to that with clinging with belief, the more we're feeding that habit, those asavas. All we need to do is turn around and notice how, right? How do we pay attention wisely? How do we uproot the asavas by seeing in this first example? Guess, the Mindfulness, sati. Bear attention, in other words, paying attention to what's arising, totally without adding anything extra anything, just totally present, without creating a story, without mistaking it, perception for something else, just being here. I'll give you an example from Krishnamurti. I just thought I'd move out of Theravada for a minute. To pay total attention three of the three times. That's not Krishnamurti. This is Krishnamurti. When you look totally You will give your whole attention, your whole being, everything of yourself, your eyes, your ears, your nerves. You will attend with complete self-abandonment. And then there is no room for fear, no room for contradiction, and therefore no conflict. When you attend totally, there's no room for asava to arise. There's no room to confuse this simple example I use a lot of someone telling me in a long retreat, there was a repetitive sound in the meditation hall. I think it was like the clock up at the teacher's place ticking. And they said, I was really experiencing deep samadhi, long sittings, and this sound just ruined it. I got completely lost for sittings after sittings for days in aversion. It ruined my samadhi. I was thinking, I can't believe they let that be here in such a deep retreat. It must have been a three-month retreat. And finally, like duh, they thought, oh, what's happening? Hearing, hearing, even that clock's ticking and making such a lot of noise, unwise attention. Total attention, not just hearing over there, it's unpleasant, total self-abandonment into hearing, just as it is. And then if it's unpleasant, Total self-abandonment to that. If aversion arises, a thought, I can't believe it. Total self-abandonment to that." And then she said, the sound wasn't ruining my samadhi. My attachment was ruining my samadhi, my mind. This is from the Buddha, from the Sutta Napata. Someone asked the Buddha, what is the state of peace? He says, dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not then cling to the present, then you go from place to place in peace." Total presence. Don't bring in the past. Don't bring in the future. Don't cling to present. And that can just be in a moment. That's not something we have to hope for down the line. Just that moment of wise attention. Yoni Manasikara. Then he goes on in the next one, kind of to the Arhat level. There is a greed that fixes on the individual body-mind. Pfft, that sense of me, sankhya Ditti. When that greed has completely gone, then, Brahman, there will be no more inner poison drives. And without these, you are immune from death. So we just start in the moment. Just this moment of total attention. No past, no future, no clinging to present, no descriptions of present, no interpreting present. Just this moment, so manasikara. Then you can go from place to place in peace. So I'll stop there for tonight and continue here next week. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not cling to the present, then you can go from place to place in peace. That is the state of peace. May the beneficial energies arising from our practice this day be united with the wholesome energy of the three times. May they be shared with all beings everywhere. That may our practice may be the cause of the awakening, the happiness, and the freedom from suffering of all beings.